are listening to the Barbara May Show, the place where we discuss all that really matters. We will cover all you need to know about lifestyle, health, spirituality, and plus so much more. Are you ready? Let's dive in. You are listening to episode 44 with Nick Dickinson. Hello beautiful soul and welcome to my podcast. If this is your first time here, welcome. My name is Barbara, your host, and I am so excited for you to be here today. If this is not your first time and you are here every single week, welcome back. I'm so happy to have you. Before we dive in, I just want to let you know that all that we discuss on this episode is going to be in the show notes. In this episode, we will talk about spells and protection. Nick, my today's guest, is a professional witch and witchcraft educator with over 35 years of experience. We will talk about Circe, the queen of all witches. If you are crazy about spells and magic, this episode is the one for you, the one you need to listen to. In the second part of this episode, we will talk about the evil eye. How evil is the evil eye? How do we protect ourselves from it? Why should we not ignore it? And so much more. Let's dive in. Hi, Nick. Welcome to my podcast. Very excited to have you here today. My first question for you is, what are you grateful for? I'm grateful for family right now. I think, you know, the past two years of the pandemic, I really have deeply connected to what family means you know and not only just you know my physical family but also like my ancestral work I think has been the most rewarding thing that I've gotten out of the past two years Mm, love it I think there has been a lot of um, reconnection going on around the world doesn't it Mm, there's been a lot of sadness but yeah it's like kind of a shocking therapy many people Mm. do actually say this today they're very grateful for their family so I love that um, so, can you tell listeners, how did you become a wizard? <laughs> <laughs> well, witchcraft and magic and folklore were always a part of my life. I grew up in a family where my mom was practicing modern American witchcraft. She had books by Louise Hebner and stuff like that. She was practicing yoga. Um, and my, we lived with my grandmother, who's from Greece, and my grandmother is a greek magical um folk magical worker let's say she she removes the evil eyes she does special prayer work for people so those two worlds were always part of my existence i guess technically i did a self-initiation from louise hebner's book power through witchcraft when i was 13 and i can't remember what year that was that was the early 80s um and i think that was the moment that i was like this is now what i am as most initiations are Love it. It's like uh-huh. as soon as you as soon as you dive into it, things things get shifted. And I was talking recently to somebody about vision boards, obviously, and knowing all those kind of stuff, and how everything just everything just works. And I used to do spells and rituals when I was little, mm. with a moon and with the flowers and with the bones and all sorts of stuff. And I always thought you have to be very careful what you wish for. Because as, as we know, these things work and it's very hard to reverse them, isn't mm-hmm. it? Because the energy is different. You're just putting so much into it to do it. And then to reverse it, there is not as much excitement. Do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I've definitely seen my spell work do things that I was like, oh, I should have 
been clearer with how I wanted that to unfold. You know, if you make a pretty broad wish, I want my stolen vest back, that might have repercussions that you didn't realize. And, you know, you might cause, um, you know, you might cause the outcome to be something much bigger than it needed to be, you know? And, and I think um, people who dabble in spell work, especially when they're young, they realize that quickly that, yeah, it's really important to, to have a really clear intention to know what you want this spell to do actually. What are your thoughts when it comes to spells? What are your thoughts on should people follow the spell book or should they follow their intuition? Because there is this big conversation mm. about this and I'm sure you have came across. It's like, oh no, just do whatever you think is right. Mm-hmm. And then and then people are like, no, 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 you need to get the black candle. You need to get this, you need to mm. do that. So what are your thoughts on that? I think I'm sort of in the middle on that. I think that when you start your training, I think it's important to... I think it's important to work within a framework or a tradition that makes sense for you and to explore what the, you know, what the history and methodologies of that tradition are. I think people who dabble just across the board eventually come to the conclusion that they need to focus on one thing. You know, if, if they're going to practice ceremonial magic, they should take a ceremonial magic approach. Does that mean they can only do ceremonial magic? No, you know, but if they're going to, um, like, for example, I'm teaching a spell coming up. And is that class again? I'm, I'm teaching an ongoing course on one of Louise Hefner's spells. And it's important for us to first look at, like, what was the tradition that she was operating from? So that if practitioners are, let's say, Circe-focused witches, or if they are Hecate-focused witches, or if they are folkloric or Christian or ceremonial, then we can add to it, but we honor the source material first, right? So if like, you know, if you come across a spell that says you have to use a black candle for this, I would use the black candle, you know, like, unless there's a good reason not to. I'm same, and I'm like, I think we need a structure, you know, like the structure has to be there when it comes to those stuff. And um, yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I think when it comes to like, um, and I call it modern magic, like when it comes to manifesting, obviously it's not modern because we always be manifesting, but like, it's kind of like kind of a modern approach. People like come up, okay, intention. And then you just do this, you just do that. And whatever feels great because obviously they're <laughs> trying to put the feeling into it and all that kind of stuff. But you have mentioned Cersei. I'm obsessed with Cersei. Mm. So can you (laughs) (laughs) can you talk a little bit? Not many people know about her. Can you just like keep quick brief of who she was? Well, who she was, and I think maybe the most important thing about who she was is Cersei is the first Greek deity, the first deity in ancient Greek at all to be mentioned in connection with witchcraft. And that would have been in the writings of Homer um, in the Odyssey. Greek witchcraft, for better or worse, has influenced uh, all of modern magic. Like, we can't escape it. You know, there's, we're still translating the Greek magical papyri. There's some good books coming out recently that, you know, even that fact that that's still happening just speaks to the sort of legacy of Greek magic and Greek witchcraft and the impact it's had on the world. And she's the beginning of it. You know, she's the source of it. And I think that's deeply, deeply significant. As a deity, she is in the class of Titans. She's the daughter of the sun. And Percy, who's in, sometimes referred to as an ocean nymph. I have some, some personal gnosis around her as well, because sometimes um, Circe is presented as the daughter of Hecate, which of course then per, 
you know, positions her in this other whole dementia of magic. Um, and even, even in the case that that's not true, um, Hecate would have been her aunt, you know, so there's still this um, deep connection to really old world magic. And I guess it's worth saying that the stories about Circe never stopped. You know, people were writing about her in Europe in the 1400s and the 1500s and the 1700s. You know, it never stopped this, you know, this, this all this, um, you know, fiction, well, whatever you want to call it, like plays and, you know, uh, different poems about her. And then yet we still, you know, we, we're still getting content from her. You know, Madeline Miller's book was an awakening for a lot of people, you know, um, and looking at Circe through that lens, which I think is very fair to do based on, you know, academic research. She was most likely a, a, an older goddess, older than Homer, of magic and of witchcraft. Also respected. She was quite oh, respected as well, which I think it's, it's amazing. It would be nice to bring the energy back. I, when I used to be little, I used to draw circles all the time, all the time. Mm. And it was circles connecting a circle, connecting a circle, connecting a circle. And it's like, it was like a, like a flower, you know, um, but like circles, circles, circles. And, and I'm obsessed with, with circles. <laughs> and I didn't know, when, when I didn't know about Cersei, that's when I was, that was like circles, circles, circles. And I wasn't reaching out, but it suddenly started popping up. Cersei, mm. Cersei, Cersei. And it's amazing how we can connect to her energy. So do you connect with her? Do you work with her? What would you say how people can work with her? And I've got so many questions for you, Nick. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, Cersei, you know, I, I don't know exactly when I first heard her name because I, I went to a Greek parochial school. So from, you know, um, baroque, uh, parochial school would have covered like kindergarten up through um, grammar school in the States. So my half a day was in, in Greek and half a day was in English. So my, my, you know, my Greek folklore was pretty good, but I don't know that she was ever mentioned outside of the context of Homer and the Odyssey. And of course she's presented as, you know, kind of like who you shouldn't be, you know, and that, that's often how the witch is portrayed in literature. The witch is the person who's other, you know, like I think part of Homer's messaging was like, if you're a woman, and you mess around with magical plants and and spells, your man's gonna leave you. Because Homer ultimately leaves her and goes back to his wife, right? So I think when we strip away that patriarchal looking and language that Homer had, there's clearly somebody underneath there that was well respected in the time. You know, it's worth pointing out that Homer was educated by Circe. You know, he one of the important roles she plays is she tells him how to deal with the dead and how to summon the spirits of the dead. And it's so fascinating that that's the case because Odysseus had, had allies in the Olympian pantheon. You know, Athena loved him, Hermes was helping him. And yet when it came to certain aspects of what he needed to do to fulfill his quest, only Circe could help him. And that positions her on equal footing with these Olympian gods, in my opinion. She was like a spiritual therapist. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and also for those people who don't know about Cersei, she was the first one who introduced the wands as That's well. That's right. She is yeah. an original wand wielder. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, it's fair to say wherever we see a wand in more modern sort of representations of witchcraft and magic, that is a reference to Circe. She's the first one, to, you know, that we know of to um, wave a, you know, she waves a wand and says something or sings something um, to do her magic. And that that image of 
you know, somebody waving a wand and saying a spell is like so across the board and so much, you know, so not just pop culture, but so many um, cultures. Mm. So Nick, I want to talk to you about the evil eye and I just would like you to explain what is the evil eye because um, there is this conversation going on between inside of the spiritual community and not even the community, but it's like people mm. who are influenced by so many spiritual teachers. It's all about how you feel. So you can be protected if you feel protected. I, I, I've never heard that before, that, that your own feeling can repel the evil eye. That wouldn't be historically accurate. It wouldn't be culturally accurate to the Mediterranean lore, at least. Regardless of how good you feel, you're susceptible to the evil eye if certain conditions are met, basically. And those conditions are wide across uh, multiple cultures, but there's some similarities. And one is that if somebody, for example, um, compliments you, they say, oh, I really like your dress. But they're thinking in their head, I don't know, you don't deserve that dress, or you're a shitty person or um, they really hate the dress and they're mocking you in some way. That the malevolence present because the person is being deceptive because they're lying is a conduit. And that what that conduit is for is also different under different circumstances. So it could be that there's just a general sort of miasma in the air. And by miasma, I mean just a, a what we'd call maybe negative energy. And that negative energy can can latch onto you in that moment there's also um definitely you know folkloric basis for saying that um spirits um demons um uh, gods goddesses could could also take the opportunity of someone complimenting you and not meaning it to get in on it and to curse you and, and to latch onto you um and really that's only just one example but I think that's a, that's a that's a pretty um, common one across multiple cultures, and that the evil eye itself is kind of like an arrow, and it's like an arrow that gets lodged. It's like an, a barbed arrow that gets lodged in your energy body, and then there's so many practices around um, what's called xematiasma in Greek, um, around removing those arrows, and we see um, arrow reversal lore going way back into Homer's time, way back into ancient Mediterranean folklore. How would somebody know they have, what would you say, put the curse on them or? It's in, in, in the Greek <laughs> culture, they say just mati, which means I. Uh, you sometimes see in, in Hindu cultures, they'll say like drishti, which is just really, it's the same thing, kind of the Sanskrit word for like gaze or attention. And what, what, what people are saying when they say that is that they've got a bad attention on them. They have a bad eye on them. It's sort of like the eye of Sauron in the Lord of the Rings or something, right? It's like when it's on you, you feel it. So the symptoms are mostly that the person feels off, that they feel off. They don't feel like themselves. Um, sometimes their face looks weird. It's almost like their face has taken on a mask or it doesn't look like them. You've seen that before. Yeah, I've seen that, yeah. Right? And another a big symptom is becoming lethargic suddenly, being being unusually tired, because the evil eye is also sometimes under certain circumstances vampiric. The person is has something latched onto them that is really taking energy out of them as well. I recently spoke to somebody and I have experienced a huge burnout. How can someone help themselves and how they can remove the evil eye? Well, there there's a bunch of methods for repelling it. 
talismans, um, blessed oil, blessed water, um, certain stones have a, a deep folkloric connection to repelling the evil eye, even colors. And of course, there are practitioners that remove the eye for people. So that's something that my grandmother taught me. She has an oral uh, lineage, exematisma prayer that goes who knows how far back because there's very strange languaging in it and very strange imagery in it. We unpack that in my course, Mastering Curse Breaking, which is just wrapping up now. We have our last session coming up, but it's something that I, I run over and over again. Yeah. Uh, but you fly, you have a practitioner to remove, to remove the evil eye. Mm-hmm. where is your if somebody wants if somebody's listening and they want to get in contact with you where can they find out those information um you can always find me on social media i check my messages regularly on instagram i'm at urban wizard i also have a patreon called hedgecraft ritual arts and that's where i actually uh, provide xematisma service so i do um, i do two curse breaking sessions a day i i do um and this is based on, on some Circe-focused um, witchcraft, some Kyrkian witchcraft. I do uh, one session during the day when the sunlight is out, and then one session under the stars. And I, I actually make a point of, of interacting with the sunlight and the starlight if I can, if I fly. And that is for all everyone who enrolls on my Patreon. And then, of course, um, as the tiers go up, you know, there's, there's more and more benefits. But as a basic spiritual service, I, get, I do xematisma every day. And that that process of xematisma is like, it's kind of like, you know, washing your dishes and brushing your teeth. Like it's just something that you you do for general, you know, sort of psychic hygiene. Um, but what I found and, and what uh, and what people enrolled in Patreon have found is that it's it's working on on multiple levels and it seems to be digging into some deeper stuff for people. I've had clients that have come to me and say, I have a generational curse on me. And I'll be like, okay, well, let's unpack this. What do you mean? And why do you think that? And instead of doing really elaborate rituals, what I usually encourage someone like that to do is just to come on Patreon and hang out and be in the services. And I do Zoom lives as well. We do live um, um, evil eye removal. And oftentimes that's all they actually need. You know, I think sometimes you just need um, a practitioner and even a, com- a community of practitioners that are all trying to set things right and trying to bring harmony. Um, and that could be enough um, to, to, to deflect it and, and to keep it away, actually. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that is one of the reasons why I've been doing my podcast, because I'm gathering all those people like you who people can reach out to. Because obviously it's so important to reach out to the good quality people, right? Who, yeah, yeah. You know, like I was, I was in Miami and I was walking around, and there was this lady who says to me, oh, "So you got cursed on you, you know? Oh no, you need to pay three hundred dollars." I'm just thinking, and I'm very confident. I know what I'm what I'm on about. I was thinking, well, well, no, I don't think so. And she's like, "Yes, you do," and I was like, mm, "Don't think so." So it's very important to find the right person. So no. I'm going to put all the links into the show notes. My other question is, can you identify, can you tell the people where the eye comes from, where the evil eye mm. or evil curse come from? Because I think that's mm. quite interesting. Um, would you be able to say like what Yeah, happens? I mean, I think in, when I look at it through just my cultural lens, you know, the ancient Greeks had this idea that if you, if you praised yourself or you praised your family too much, that the gods would punish you for it. To me, that feels very evil eye-ish. 
that you'll have the wrong eyes on you. Some will be looking at you the wrong way. And of course, when we get into sort of like, you know, do a cross-cultural comparison of the evil eye, maybe, um, we start to see that that's really the theme, that someone's looking at you the wrong way and that someone doesn't have to be a human being. It can be a spiritual being as well. And when I really get into the sort of the technical, like what is the evil eye, I, I tend to describe it from a tantric Buddhist lens. So, um, well, you might not know, but uh, listeners that I was a Buddhist monk for several years as well. So I have a lot of, um, you know, technical understanding of like the chakra systems and how energy moves in the body and stuff like that. And that, when I became a Buddhist monk and started studying that stuff, I was like, oh, that's how the evil eye is functioning it gets sort of lodged in the what we call like the energy wind structure of the body so it's 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 almost like a like if you imagine your energy centers the chakra systems the energy lines as like plumbing it's like a, a, a blocked pipe <laughs> you know like something's not letting the energy flow correctly and so the person who does the evil eye removal is sending that energy back now, where it goes back to is, you know, different across different cultures. Sometimes it goes right back to the practitioner. Sometimes it just sort of gets reset into the fabric of energy. Um, and sometimes it goes back to like a deity or something like that. But I think when we talk about like, what is it exactly? It's, it's an energy substance. Like it's a, it's a psychic energy arrow. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, no, it totally does. Um, in my culture, we give uh, red ribbons to babies. Mm. So you put them around around their hands and or you put that on a pan. And so that's what it's been. It's been we've been doing that for centuries, you know, just yeah. to try to protect them from, from an evil eye. And when I had my son, um, I haven't posted any pictures of him anywhere. Mm. I just have this feeling that I need to protect, I just need to protect him. So many people don't even they still don't know that I actually got two children. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, and the red thread is across the board too. Like you find in the initiations of tantric Buddhism, which for me was like in a Tibetan format, red threads are given out for protection. Um, in Greek culture, red threads are given out for protection. There's so many Middle Eastern, uh, and it's specific for whatever reason, um, specific to the evil eye. And often there are knots tied in as well. What are your thoughts about it, talismans? You know, the, the evil eye talismans. What I, think, I think they work under certain circumstances. I think I think it's important to consecrate them when you get them. Otherwise, they feel just a, like a little bit of jewelry to me. But I think if they're consecrated, I think if the person is has an, a fundamental understanding of how these energy works, then it's it, it definitely can function for sure. Mm. And that that color blue we find across the board as well. Um, like even in American or early American culture, blue was a uh, color that re repelled bad spirits. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm. I thought it was. I thought it was always black and red for some reason. Yeah, this turquoise blue, this um, sky blue, you find also in multiple cultures. You always see the eyes in sky blue, and I think it's a reference really to the stone turquoise, which we find, for example, in Tibetan culture. Some traditions hold that all the turquoise in the world is the manifestation of the deity Tara. Um, who is um, a goddess of protection, you know, well, technically she's a Buddha, but a Buddhist goddess of protection, you know, a savioress. Yeah, you know, when I think about the blue, I kind of think that blue balances things out, if that makes sense. So maybe, I don't yeah. know, that, that's, how I, that's how I feel it. Well, I also think that we can look at the, we can look at the evil eye as like 
as like a temporary cloud. So when the clouds cover the sky, it's gray, but we know the sky is blue. So when, this, when the clouds are absent, blue is there. So blue can communicate maybe on like a, you know, um, even on a super duper subtle level that there's a clarity there, you know? And I think that's what we look for when we're trying to get rid of the evil eye, we're trying to dispel something. Mm. Thank you so much, Nick. Absolutely love that. Thank you so You're much welcome. for coming on my podcast. <laughs> so my last question, and I know you have said that again, but where mm. can listeners find you and where can they get in contact with you? <laughs> they can find me on Instagram um, at, at Urban Wizard. And uh, my Patreon is Hedgecraft Virtual Arts.